Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode, and today we're talking to Josh Reno, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Binghamton University. Josh is the author of Waste Away, Working and Living with a North American Landfill, and the editor with Catherine Alexander of the 2012 collection Economies of Recycling. Today we'll be talking about his new book, Military Waste, The Unexpected Consequences of Permanent War Readiness, published by the University of California Press in 2019. Josh Reno, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Before we delve into the book itself, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to start thinking and writing about waste and how this new book uh, builds on your previous projects? Sure. Um, so, the, I mean, the, there's an official version, I feel like, of everyone's starting their research uh, and an unofficial version. Um, which, which, which would you rather hear, one or the other or both? Uh, let's hear the unofficial version. I think those are usually more interesting, right? So the unofficial version is I was, is I got interested in a girl. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was an undergraduate and, um, I, uh, started dating an environmental uh, studies engineer who is now my wife and, uh, her classes were always, I don't know, more interesting in some ways than mine. Um, I was learning anthropology and for the first time and getting into social theory, and it seemed to me that, uh, you know, I would open her books and there would be all this stuff about networks of, you know, uh, sewage lines and um, waste transfer stations and this whole kind of infrastructure that if you read about political economy, you don't really hear anything about. If you read about sort of capitalism, even the harshest critics of capitalism, they don't really say much about. There's this fascinating way in which we had this whole underworld of um, waste movement circulation transfer to take it away from our everyday lives that wasn't really being talked about at the other side of the university where I was learning about, you know, critical social theory. So um, when I became an anthropologist and I knew I wanted to work in the U.S., I was more interested in kind of modernity and capitalism and sort of critiques thereof. And it seemed to me that um, all of the stuff I'd learned about accidentally while trying to, you know, um, get closer to this uh, young woman that I met in college, um, accidentally uh, introduced me to an alternative way of thinking about political economy in American society that I got really excited about. So the unofficial version is really it was a part of uh, uh, trying to um, marry someone. And it worked. So that, that was good. But also I accidentally got a career out of it. Yeah, an accidental PhD as a result of the marriage. Yeah, kind of. The official version, though, is waste is interesting, and it is. And um, not a lot, it seemed, had been done about it, per se. And, you know, some people have written on it, but not within, uh, not doing their first research on it, as it were. Like, you know, people have come to waste as a second or third research project. Um, and even in those instances, it seemed that people weren't necessarily working with waste. 
as laborers um, or working against waste corporations as activists. So that's what I did for my PhD research. Right. That was based on an ethnography of a, a landfill in Michigan, if, if I'm right. That's correct. And Michigan is where I went to grad school, um, University of Michigan. And I didn't plan on working in Michigan. But then while I was there, again, having married this woman, um, <laughs> she was still doing environmental engineering. And we were talking about that every day. And I was learning about anthropology in more depth. And um, basically, like, it was just in the news. Like, everyone, you know, every time a politician would visit Michigan, they would be talking about this trash crisis. And what happened was Michigan got way too many landfills because they were worried about having too little landfill space. And that attracted a kind of a global market, if you like, uh, even though it was a regional one, um, of waste to be imported into Michigan from as far away as Florida, you know, Illinois, um, uh, Kentucky, and, and so forth, but also uh, Toronto. So Canada, which was having its own waste issues, started sending all its waste to Michigan. And this was a major political issue at the time. And I was fascinated by, again, waste as this kind of good that couldn't be regulated. And that was part of uh, political economy in a way that wasn't um, normally closely analyzed. Uh, but I was also interested in waste labor as a distinct kind of labor, um, which could be good, you know, a, a good paying job and give you a union uh, uh, salary and benefits. But um, also kind of came with the stigma attached to it. So that was the kind of origin of my interest in waste originally. Um, and then the most recent project, um, it was always kind of in the back of my head because interestingly, landfills have a military connection. Um, uh, well, basically the American landfill um, that was designed by uh, Jean Vincennes was sort of tinkered with in the 1930s. And then World War II broke out and Vincennes joined the Army Corps of Engineers and started introducing landfilling to all of the young engineers working in uh, the different, uh, well, I know they were in the European front, at the very least. So landfilling became the preferred waste disposal method of the U.S. military during its uh, sort of occupation of Europe um, or, or you, know, you know, fight against Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. And, uh, and then when all those engineers returned home, they'd learned how to landfill from Vincennes and this method. And it actually helped disseminate landfilling as a technique throughout the country. So I was always sort of fascinated by this interesting military connection to American waste disposal. Um, and it is almost like we are operating with like military precision to hide our waste as if we have enemies that are looking for it. Um, <laughs> with given how sort of, um, fanatical Americans tend to be about sending waste out of sight and not knowing about it. Uh, so that was always in the back of my mind, but then really, uh, I'm, a, uh, interested in things that make Americans sort of unique and distinct. And one of those things is that Americans waste a lot, but another is that we have this massive, massive military, um, that far sort of out, you know, far out ways the any sort of logical perception of risk, right? I mean, I, why would we need to be able to blow up the world several times over, right? It just is not necessary, but we talk about it as if it's necessary. And the stories we tell about the military tend to be about its importance, um, its solemn sort of importance and 
and um, and its necessity in the dangerous world we live in, despite the fact that the United States has sort of suffered very few attacks from other enemies, has been pretty safe in this hemisphere as a result of being far more powerful than all neighboring countries. Um, so I'm sort of fascinated by that paradox, if you like. Uh, and that led me uh, to the second book project. So this book is about um, what you call World War III, which luckily enough is an event that hasn't happened just yet, um, but that the U.S. has even so been ready for for decades. So can you say a little bit about what you mean by permanent war readiness and why waste is a particularly fruitful way to start to understand this um, military state of being? Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it goes back to that issue of the perceived necessity of the military industrial complex that for the better part of a century, but really going back further than that, Americans have been told and told themselves that a, a sort of a permanently uh, powerful and um, destructive military is, is, a, is a necessity. And that um, being a realist means accepting the necessity of all that uh, military hardware. So that's, what I mean by permanent war readiness, the idea that we should always be ready for war at all times. And, you know, plenty of people uh, are pointing out, especially now with the um, threat of a possible war with Iran uh, looming in the kind of as a possibility. Um, people have noted the kind of idea of permanent war, right? The notion of um, the U.S. constantly attacking, invading, bombing, doing something. And it's true, like we've been involved in Afghanistan at war with the Taliban in some form or another for, you know, a decade or more. And um, we have had continuous military engagements. But what fascinates me even more than that in this book is that even if we are not fighting any particular war, we are always ready for any possible war. And that is not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in any of our founding documents as a country. But somehow we've become convinced that it's a necessity, a political necessity. The reason waste I find useful partly is that it's a kind of a local critique that Americans have already formed themselves. Americans have been talking about military waste for a century or more. Actually, Thorsten Veblen, who's most well known for theory of the leisure class and um, his account of conspicuous consumption. I'm sure you're familiar with Veblen's work. He actually wrote about military wastefulness in like the early, at the turn of the century and about like how um, an investment in permanent military infrastructure was, as he put it, wasteful and unproductive. And then, of course, there have been Marxians who've been, had the same, a similar line, Luxembourg and Lenin and the, uh, and Paul, uh, Baron and Paul Sweezy and Monopoly Capital. So there's the, there are these kind of counter traditions of looking at the military as a wasteful operation, as unproductive economically as say an investment of resources that lead to just destruction. Um, and, you know, with the cold war that became a, another counter discourse that formed in a broadly speaking Marxian tradition, but somewhat inspired by Veblen. And there's even um, a really interesting book by uh, the late Peter Custers that I don't think many people know about called globalizing, or I'm sorry, um, it's, it's a, about uh, uh, global militarism, and it details kind of a Marxian 
critique of economic exchange vis-a-vis military and military waste. So there's this sort of counter tradition I found interesting, but that wasn't really taken up much in either discard studies or in critical military studies. Um, so there was already this existing discourse on the military and waste. And then also, you know, you read the news and you'd hear, you know, um, there was a, you know, I don't think I included this in the book finally, but there was an interview with John McCain a few years ago where he's talking about how incensed he is that John McCain is a Republican, former Republican senator, um, you know, deceased from Arizona, but, you know, where he was incensed that they couldn't seem to f- um, spend this uh, military package that had been designated for small firearms. And, um, you know, he was sort of very critical of all the um, misused funds and the failure to kind of um, uh, get contracts fulfilled in a, in a, a rational way and so on. And, you know, you'd get like generals occasionally who would be interviewed and say, if you just give me a charge card, I'll go to Costco and get you all the handguns you need. I, this is dumb that we have to go through all these, uh, all this bureaucratic red tape. So there's also this kind of internal critique of the military um, financial, it's, you know, sort of operation where it's, you know, the money isn't spent wisely. It's not, you know, you, uh, uh, there are all these sort of crooked companies or crooked politicians who are like wasting it and so on. So I, I also, you know, came to it again with an understanding that there was a local, if you like, critique of the military vis-a-vis waste. So on the one hand, there's this kind of radical counter tradition that uses this trope of military waste to critique the perceived necessity or the perceived value of waste coming from a marketing tradition. On the other hand, there's a more kind of, if you like, conservative tradition uh, or, or normative tradition that says that the military is too valuable to misuse or misspend on the way we tend to with our huge bloated uh, Department of Defense. Uh, I was interested, in, if you like, finding a third way that is inspired somewhat by these different approaches or takes them as a starting point and thinks about how there's all this excess that comes from the military industrial complex from uh, preparing for a possible war, World War III that um, starts um, um, uh, sort of collecting and collecting outside anyone's expectations or um, plans so that we end up with all this junk everywhere. Uh, and that I find is an interesting third way of examining the relationship between military and waste. That's one of the really great things about the book is how surprising so many of the forms of waste that appear in it are. Um, so there's a lot that could be said about things like the environmental consequences of war or um, the kinds of pollution that military operations or military installations produce or the flow of military hardware from the armed services into American police departments um, and you touch on those in the book, but they're not always the central forms of waste that you analyze here. So how did you assemble the wastes that do comprise the book? And what do you hope these kind of less expected or, or less familiar forms of waste reveal about ma- militarism and militarization? Yeah, so that you're, you're right that there's a version of this book that could have focused in a, uh, more cleanly on, say, the toxic consequences of war or war preparation. And there's some wonderful work being done by people like Catherine Lutz now on former um, uh, military sites that uh, leave pollution behind in their wake, right? Uh, And other people are doing that work too. Um, And I think it works really valuable, but what what I was more interested in with this book, as you say, 
are sort of less expected um, avenues for waste to go. And when I started the project, I thought of that in a quite, in a very literal uh, way as sort of unexpected wastes or wastes that, that are open-ended in their possibilities. And toxic pollution is pretty closed. It's a pretty closed case. It is dangerous and destructive to human and non-human life and to the environment. So there's not much unexpected about it, even though it's terrible and worth talking about. So what interested me initially was the idea that there's all this excess machinery that was produced for a war that never happened, World War III. Now, that's saying it that way is a bit tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but some people, the way they put it is World War III did happen for a lot of people, just not for, say, Americans or um, people in the global north. There were all these small wars instead that were made possible partly through this excess military hardware, as you put it, through weapons transfer. But, you know, the when I initially thought of it, I thought literally, okay, there's this excess weaponry, excess planes, ships, guns. Where do they go, right? Um, they can't all be, I know the problems of waste, uh, you know, typical municipal solid waste. I know that things don't just evaporate because they're not useful anymore. So what happens to those ships? What happens to those planes, et cetera? And so I, you know, learned about the massive uh, Air Force base in uh, uh, the Boneyard in, outside of Tucson, Arizona, which a lot of people hear about one way or another. Um, I think Zizek filmed there. Some of the Transformers movies filmed there. Like It's a popular film location. Um, but it's in the desert there, which is a great place to keep old military planes because they uh, break down more slowly in the desert than they would if there was a lot of uh, humidity, et cetera. So basically, um, I looked for places like that where military stuff goes. And I was interested in planes. I looked into ships, and there's some ship-breaking operations that I looked into, but eventually decided to look at um, some artificial reefing operations that make use of military ships in different ways. And then it got kind of and then the research took some turns I didn't expect where I started thinking about waste in ways, um, thinking about excess and collateral damage and um, unanticipated outcomes. And so that led me to think about, say, the militarization of space and um, orbital space debris, which, again, people talk about, but normally not in relation to the military that I saw as a kind of military excess. Uh, that's polluted the uh, sort of uh, gravity around Earth. Uh, and then I, it sort of got even stranger and took me to other places, uh, including um, mass shootings, which I see as a kind of, and other people see as a sort of pollution uh, or unexpected outcome of a very militarized society and militarized masculinities. Uh, and then in the end, even, uh, of the book, I even argue that, um, some, um, seemingly benign government initiatives to create, uh, wilderness areas and parts of the world also have a kind of military connection to military access. Um, so that's where, uh, sort of the interest in the unexpected led me. And I usually prefer research projects that lead me somewhere I didn't expect to go rather than 
ones that stay within a kind of particular frame, but then it becomes, of course, more of a challenge to organize it within a central argument. So as you have you sort of laid out, this is a really multi-sided ethnographic project that takes us around the U.S. and around the U.S. empire. Um, and this also involved working and co-writing with another anthropologist, Priscilla Bennett. Can you tell us a bit about this collaboration and about the research process itself? Yeah, um, I'd love to. So Priscilla is now, uh, has finished her PhD a, a couple of years ago. She was already doing research in Key West. That's where she was doing her own doctoral research on uh, mosquito-borne pathogens and specifically on genetic, um, sort of new genetic technology that was trying to program Frankenstein mosquitoes, Frankenskeeters, to uh, um, stop the mosquitoes that carry um, different kinds of, uh, uh, like dengue fever, different kinds of pathogens that are coming from the South. and she was already there so, and I was, I'm on her, I was on her committee. So I was already talking to her about her research. And then I found out that one of the places that ships, one of the really common places for old military ships to go was around the keys. So, you know, it started kind of informally, she would be there for field work and I would say, Oh, could you ask about this or look into that? And then we, the more we talked, the more I, you know, I, I am very, um, I get concerned whenever, okay, so partly this is just reflecting on privilege, right? So I had a tenure track job. She, uh, she was my graduate student. And so already I was thinking, um, where is the line between informally sort of getting a sense of the field site from her and sort of benefiting from her expertise in a way that should be acknowledged through credit, right? And that's a fuzzy thing. And I think it can get fuzzier the more ensconced you are within forms of institutional privilege. So um, I was, I I hope early on is my recollection, sort of talking to Priscilla about like, you know, do you want to publish something together? Because the more we talked about what she was identifying there, the more it was obvious I was relying on her understanding of Key West as a site. So that turned into an agreement where I said, okay, look, I have this book project. How about we do the field work together on the side? I helped get research money for her to do her own PhD research. And then on the side, she was helping with uh, uh, this one bit of my research. So in the end, um, her ethnography really contributed to the chapter that deals with artificial reefing because it deals with Key West. And the reason Key West comes alive, if you like, as a field site in that chapter is because of her involvement. I went there also, but it was really her expertise that um, gave us that uh, option. And then she ended up helping a bit with other projects. She went to the Tucson um, base, for example. Uh, And um, so there are two chapters where her ethnographic contributions and her contributions as co-author were really helpful to do a multi-sided project. As people sort of I don't know if you're finding this, Jacob, but when you start doing your second or third project and your ambitions might grow, you don't like necessarily get more time (laughs) just because you have more, you know, ideas about where you might do research or what you might be researching. (laughs) So collaboration can be great, um, but I and I'm collaborating a lot more than I used to. And I think that's maybe inevitable 
In some ways, though, it's also just a re- reality of um, having more kind of like responsibilities when you uh, start becoming a, a senior academic. But then also, in my case, having a kind of a, uh, a family life where I'm needed at home and I can't go do long term fieldwork. I just can't, um, which is the other kind of reality of the ethnographic research behind the book is that a lot of it was done locally in Binghamton um, and in the Southern tier because uh, one, I was sort of interested in, again, the unexpected realities of military production in my own backyard um, that are actually part, as I did more research of Binghamton University itself and the why it's there. Um, But also it was a kind of a useful uh, solution to not having the same opportunity for long-term field work that one has as a, as a junior scholar. Um, so collaboration and multi-sided research are partly logistically um, just more feasible than doing long-term dedicated field work, but also they were an answer to a different kind of project, as you pointed out. So some of the the people that you met in New York, maybe to j- dive into the first chapter, included um, engineers, and you introduced us to, to these retired engineers and to the discourses around military waste that you've already kind of alluded to um, in the political arena, as well as that are kind of internal to the military industrial complex itself. Um, and you write that waste is a central conceptual concern that engineers are always weighing, balancing, and actively managing themselves. And so... Um, how did how did the engineers that you met conceptualize waste and relate it to issues around quality, durability, responsibility, and all these other kind of important moral terms through which they understood their work? Yeah, I, that's a you know interesting question because I um, I've been talking to engineers for years uh, again partly because of the uh, the woman I married, but also because um, those are the people that often do work with waste, right? Um, and they have very distinct ways, usually, of talking about waste as a problem. And even, you know, um, there's been this kind of move within waste management, broadly speaking, um, that's global. It's not just in the places I've worked. Um, to think about waste as a resource, right? And waste as resource is this kind of mantra for a lot of engineers. Um, there's a similar kind of set of motivations within military manufacturing. But I think that's sort of amplified in that, one, there's a lot of scrutiny on what they're doing because they're making what's seen as a kind of really transcendent, uh, an, an object of transcendent value, right? So it's not, it's not even like the people making your iPhone or people growing apples. It's, it's someone making bombs or making planes and helicopters that are flying, you know, into um, military, uh, into, you know, uh, military zones, but also are sort of anytime things involve service members and the troops, um, they get heightened uh, in terms of their importance. Uh, And then again, are connected to these discourses I already mentioned about military wastefulness and the military industrial complex. It's one thing we haven't talked so much about so far is the, I think it's sort of implicit. Is the, is the kind of critique of the military industrial complex, which a lot of people associate with Eisenhower in his sort of closing speech. Um, the idea that, the, that industry, government, um, and other social powerful elite social actors 
increasingly will work together to, you know, it's in their interest to sort of build up the military in a, in a, if you like, wasteful way. So I was fascinated by like engineers being, you know, are they affected by this, these discourses? Are they aware of these critiques? And they are. And they're aware also of the kind of heightened concern that people place around these things, but they also just have like basic economic concerns, right? Like, like any worker does in an industry, which is under intense pressure because of um, a kind of, with the end of the cold war, there was this consolidation of major weapons manufacturers, one of whom is Lockheed Martin, one of the major ones, the most profitable one, as far as I'm aware, which is based locally. So you went from a kind of very diversified economy of a lot of military manufacturers during the Cold War to less military funding overall, although that changed with um, the war on terror. But, you know, for, in the, for a few years in the 90s, there was this idea of bases are closing. What will happen to all this excess military financing and weaponry? And there was a lot of consolidation of major companies and then neoliberalizing of working conditions where um, working efficiently and having more internal audit places pressure on workers to maximize their productivity, right? So it's a familiar story and it has been for the better part of a you know quarter century, but it was not a familiar story within military manufacturing because for a number of years, there was a kind of military Keynesianism that was operating during the Cold War, even as you know union busting and corporate consolidation was happening in other parts of uh, the American and global economy. So uh, on the one hand, there's all this initial pressure on military engineers. On the other hand, there's this high transcendent value placed on what they do. So I found that w- uh, when I would talk to them, waste would come up and it would come up because of both of those things, right? Because they're trying to show their bosses and employers that they are working efficiently and working carefully, and that waste is a way of proving that to yourself and to others. It's part of a kind of, if you like, ethical discourse about being a good engineer, is eliminating and reducing waste. And it's also part of a broader discourse about taking care of your customer, in this case, the, usually the Department of Defense, right, where you're identifying the path of the, of the product you're selling to them throughout its life course. There's a kind of a life course analysis in the same way people try to do by like, you know, being good consumers and should I buy this thing rather than that thing? I mean, there's a similar process happening on the producer end. Uh, There's a increased level of producer responsibility in military manufacturing to make sure that you're not producing a a satellite, a a bomb, a missile that's going to uh, outlive its usefulness Um, or, or, you know, uh, that it's going to, sorry, that it will in in a way outlive its usefulness, but it has a, um, an end point that is predictable and that can be managed and that, you know, you have a plan for its, the end of its life. And I thought that was interesting too, far more than any other commodity, you would have producers and designers talking about how should this military object end? And you just do not see that in like, say, plastic manufacturing, (laughs) like people making bottles of, of soda or whatever, aren't thinking, how will this plastic bottle end? They're just thinking, how do we, unload as many of these as possible. But you had these military manufacturers, these engineers talking about the kind of end of life of military products because of the increased competition and because of the increased value placed on what they were doing. And, and 
focusing like this on the kind of everyday practices of um, of engineers designing weapon systems gives us a critique of the military industrial complex um, that you write is at the scale of life. So what kinds of critiques and insights do you think emerge from this level of analysis that you think are missing from other kinds of accounts of military spending and militarization? It's, you know, it's not that they're missing from other accounts so much as missing from popular discourse, I guess. Um, I think most people writing about writing within critical military studies are quite aware that the military industrial complex is not this like boogeyman, that it's a real set of social actors and social networks. Um, at the same time, there is this kind of tendency. I mean, if you ask your average person, what does military industrial complex say to you that they'll think of like, I don't know if you remember the X-Files, but they'll think of like, you know, the <laughs> dark rooms full of like guys in suits, uh, secretly conspiring behind closed doors, you know, like it's, it's, um, it easily becomes conspiracy theory is the problem. Right. Um, and what I wanted to do, if you like, is yeah, scale it down to size or make it a little more human. And the way I think of it is that, you know, I, I, I was going to some local charities. Uh, one thing I didn't mention or we haven't mentioned is that part of the, I had a, a problem and the ethnographic problem was how to get military manufacturers to talk to me. If you like call Lockheed Martin or show up at their gate, uh, they're going to give you their marketing people to talk to, and they're going to not really give you access to um, their employees. But if you find those people, if I, and I, this is total luck. I just happen to find like local charities and um, a sort of nonprofit organizations in the community that had engineers going there to, to work and to contribute their time and labor. So uh, I got, I, I recruited people that way. Um, what struck me was like, I was going to say this uh, uh, meeting of a, of an astro astronomical society that um, I started joining to learn more about space debris. And once I started finding out who was attending this and it's all, you know, middle-aged white guys, um, some of them retired white guys. Uh, and what I found out was like the military industrial complex was at that meeting, right? Like it was a guy from Lockheed uh, or several guys from Lockheed, one guy from um, who'd worked at the university and now was and gone back and forth between university teaching and private industry in the military. And then some people working for the DOD, um, the Department of Defense, through like the Defense Contracts Management Agency the DCMA and the DCMA is sort of like the go between that oversees the fulfillment of military projects. Once the projects have been procured by a particular private vendor, then the DCMA sort of does the auditing to make sure that they're um, staying within budget to checking up on their progress. Right. So really it's the DCMA that makes the military industrial complex work because they stand in between the military and industry to sort of help make a smooth relationship form. So I realized that, that in a way the military industrial complex was not a bunch of boogeymen, you know, happening in Washington and halls of power only, but also is evident in this local astronomical club of these people who have a close relationship with each other and go like, you know, uh, hang out at the observatory all the time and then go camping together and then volunteer together and in, you know, local food drives and stuff like it is part of community and it's part of everyday life here. And if you 
think of the military industrial complex purely as this um, uh, sort of conspiracy theory, then you can miss how it is part of real relationships and quote unquote ordinary people that you might know. Um, and indeed, going further, you might miss how anthropology and anthropologists have been part of the military industrial complex and continue to be in various ways. Um, and that also, I think, is a humbling sort of critique that um, is important, I find, uh, that, uh, you know, has been written about wonderfully by um, uh, people like, you know, uh, David Price. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but um, he has a great book, uh, Cold War Anthropology. And then he's talking about, like, how there are, of course, many anthropologists funded by um, the national security state and by military uh, interests. But even if they're not, they are benefiting those interests in various ways. And I partly wanted to, on the one hand, complicate the notion of the military industrial complex as this uh, impersonal institutional uh, arrangement and personalize it. And on the other hand, I wanted to um, press social scientists to not separate themselves from the, their object of their criticism and derision, but to also see how it's shaped their own set of practices in ways that they might not uh, want to acknowledge. So maybe jumping ahead a little bit to, to chapter four, um, which you've mentioned is about space debris. This is one of these moments in the book where this kind of very removed um, set of material things linked to the military industrial complex literally comes crashing down to earth with these um, uh, crashes of space debris in Wisconsin and, and a few other places. So um, could you tell us a little bit about the accumulation of debris in Earth's orbit and how, how this is linked to the military, um, the military production of war readiness? Sure. Well, so on the one hand, there, there's been a, a kind of in growth and in interest, especially through the work of um, people like Alice Gorman, in the archaeology of the of outer space and in the archaeology of space debris. And so that is kind of looking at space debris as an artifact um, of, say, national history or maybe, maybe Cold War history. What interested me was how if you examine, say, the creation and the production of space debris and the worsening of the problem of space debris, um, you can't ex tell that story either of the production of space debris or the identification of it as a problem, the problematization of it, if you'd like, without the military. The military is necessary for both. Um, without the U.S. military and without Cold War military machinations, you wouldn't have a space debris problem growing to its current, uh, uh, which, you know, which is like there are I don't know, half a million objects floating around, buzzing around Earth in orbit, basically going as fast as little bullets. Um, and most of them are tiny fragments, so they're hard to catch or grab. So on the one hand, there's this problem of materials. Anytime you launch anything into space, it jettisons a bit of pollution, right? To get it to break Earth's gravity, it's going to have to, um, it's an engineering problem. You have to kind of create debris. You have like new space companies, like um, what's the Elon Musk company, SpaceX or whatever, that are trying to like create reusable uh, equipment, but that's kind of a new uh, fetish. Um, the idea is that you always create it, but you can worsen it if, for example, 
you start playing with anti-satellite weaponry, which the U.S., China, Russia, various countries have been doing, where you target satellite. You want to know how to target satellites in the event of a future war, and you know any future war with among the big uh, uh, militaries today would start probably by shutting down their internet. Um, and the way you do that is by targeting satellites, which you can't really defend. You can't like, you know, put fences around a satellite or, um, put mines around it to stop someone from getting in it. Right. So really they're just floating there harmless and helpless. And that freaks out militaries. So they are trying to figure out ways to protect their satellites and they're trying to figure out ways to target enemy satellites. So how do you practice target shooting? You practice by shooting at a bit of dead satellite. Uh, debris or um, an unused satellite, and there's lots of them. And when you do that, you create this cascading effect where bits of debris collide into other bits of debris, which create more debris, which create more debris. And some people say this is like a feedback loop, right? Where more debris creates more debris, creates more debris, and there's an effect named for it and so forth. So there's that aspect of military producing this as a problem. And if you have like half a million bits of debris floating like bullets around the uh, uh, Earth orbit at various levels, basically anytime you try to send something into space, you have to worry about it. You have to move it out of the way somehow. And the International Space Station routinely has to make adjustments in orbit because they identify some bit of debris coming at them and they have to move slightly and then move slightly. And then sometimes that debris is just regular ordinary debris. And sometimes it is the result of a Russian satellite going down or something. So there's that issue. But then there's another issue, which is a whole bunch of military agencies are trying to solve space debris and make value out of it, basically make it useful. And number one there is DARPA, the Defense um, uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency. And DARPA is crazy. I mean, they, they do all sorts of nutty things. But one of the things they really want to do is create a robot that would collect all that space debris, repurpose it, and use it. And why do they want to do that? Well, among other things, it would have a lot of military potential because if you can make use of that space debris, you could also uh, create weapons in space out of like, you know, it cheaply and efficiently. You could make little bombs if you like. But there are other kinds of uses of space that are being toyed with that are almost certainly going to become reality. The one that freaks me out the most is the, um, which I mentioned briefly in the book is the rods from God project, which would take telephone pole sized rods of tungsten and then drop them with precision from near earth orbit so that they hit say a city with the impact of Hiroshima, but with no fallout. So there's no radiation. It's just destruction. Um, and that is really appealing uh, for architects of mass destruction. Um, a, uh, a nuclear consequence without a nuclear winter. So um, those are the kinds of things people want to use space for in the military sector, but they can't as long as there are all these forms of waste polluting that they helped create polluting their environment. So I find that paradox fascinating that they want to use space and can't. And I also find it interesting how Discussions of space so easily become demilitarized, where people talk about it purely as, you know, I don't know, about discovery and about adventure instead of being a, 
uh, an economic activity and a military activity and a pol- uh, an environmentally polluting activity. Great. So to bring things back um, back to earth slightly, you've you've um, already mentioned the Boneyard, which is this really charismatic site uh, next to an Air Force base in Arizona. Can you can you say a little bit more about that and um, how the place came to be and some of the different projects of repair and reuse that people are engaging in at the Boneyard? Yeah. So um, basically, it's any time that you put in a site of of waste of excess, anytime you like drop it could be um uh you know shipwrecks it could be excess planes it could be a landfill or a dump you attract businesses and entrepreneurs and and um aspiring uh recyclers informal recyclers around those sites um that happens all over the world and it's no different if you drop a whole bunch of planes in the middle of a desert so over the last you know 40 or 50 years um Informal recyclers and scrappers have emerged around that Boneyard Air Force Base in outside of Tucson. And um, it's, you know, there's also a museum that's grown there. And it has a kind of complicated relationship to the military because, you know, they're not military operations, but they rely on military excess. Um, And there's even ways in which forms of reuse can serve military ends. Like um, there's this one scrapyard that's been there for a number of years that films movies there and you, you know creates crash sites um for local emergency services to experiment on but they've also like helped um stage simulations for branches of the air force to do simulations on that they can't do at their base so they're they're actually using military excess partly to like aid the military to create simulated experiences and it while they also help hollywood to stage creative destruction. That's sort of fascinating. But other uses that I find even more interesting are ones where the military objects are not revered or, um, you know, valued in a way that it amplifies their kind of patriotic value or nationalist sentiment or whatever. Um, And uh, in the U.S. that has been strong for a number of years, but especially since... Um, uh, sort of war on terror and the post-Vietnam attitudes about respecting veterans, Um, which, of course, is itself paradoxical because people, meanwhile, uh, slice uh, veterans' benefits um, and support that. So the idea that you would look at a plane and see it, for example, as a canvas, as something that you could paint beautifully rather than something that you would have to commemorate as a military artifact. I found very interesting as a kind of unexpected use of the plane. And that led me to kind of a counter or minor art, uh, in, in Deleuze and Gautier's, uh, term, uh, w- that has coexisted with the military and with the use of planes for a number of years. And I ended up sort of reading, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was reading alternative histories of different things in the military. and. Uh, or military adjacent. And one of those was the uh, sort of the, the small alternative history of um, nose art, of sort of uh, military, in this case, pilots and other uh, service uh, members who are kind of surreptitiously and <laughs> secretly painting planes in ways that go outside the 
strictures of, of military discipline and control. Um, and initial nose art was completely uh, disallowed by the military. And you would have guys going out at night, painting planes, usually paid with liquor. Uh, that partly interested me because my grandfather, he wasn't in the Air Force, but he was, uh, he was in the Army, but he was a painter. And I could imagine him being one of these guys that was like getting paid to like paint a cartoon figure on someone's, uh, uh, no, um, you know, side of their plane against orders. So uh, what's interesting is that there's this counter history of treating planes like art objects that was happening in the militaries themselves that was partly suppressed or they tried to suppress it. Uh, and that fascinated me. And then, and then you have these street artists, graffiti artists, um, who are hired by this museum outside the boneyard to paint planes even more kind of lavishly and fantastically. And I expected that there would be resistance to that, even though they're not doing anything that's clearly right. Subversive per se. That's not like you're, I don't know, setting, you know, painting it and the, it, painting it like an American flag and setting it on fire. You know I mean? It's, none of the art was that subversive, but the mere fact of sort of painting an, a plane to look like a mechanical eagle really upset some people who talked about how this is disrespectful to the military. And that kind of, if you like, um, subtle subversion, I found interesting. Like what is happening there when you turn a plane into an art object? How is that connected or not connected to the minor history, the minor art of, planes as art objects that subsist within militaries themselves. And that also led me to read more about planes and flying and how planes are just weird. I mean, just weird. Uh, and the more you look into the history of planes and their relationship to warfare, the more weird histories of, of flying and flight can kind of inform an alternative analysis of places like the Boneyard as this, uh, if you like place of imagination, even more than a, a, a dump, Right. Like it, it seems to produce endless imaginative imaginative possibilities for people, either in terms of simulation or art. And that kind of surplus imagination, if you like, is, is so uh, extreme that you even find it in fiction. Um, people imagine that the boneyard exists in that way, even without knowing it does. So Don Delilo has a book, Underworld. I don't know if you've read it. I've been meaning to, but it's been on the shelf for a while. I, I think that should be on the back of the book. It, because that's what everybody says. Like, it, literally, the quote should be, I've been meaning to read this, but it's on the shelf. Um, it's, it's good, but there's a whole subsection of it, a chapter about a fictional artist named Clara Sachs, who's working in the desert on old military planes, painting them. And I was convinced this must have somehow come to the attention of people in Tucson. They must have heard about this fantasy uh, from this quite well-known book. Uh, but no, no one had heard about this. But somehow, independently, a fiction writer had imagined in his Cold War sort of uh, novelistic, imaginative excursus on waste and, and the American past, had imagined this possibility. And then separately, a bunch of artists and uh, museum uh, Dawsons and so forth put together a project where they would bring in street artists to paint planes. Um, and I love when things happen like that, where you get sort of, I guess it's the closest you get to something like the old school anthropology version of culture, where you get sort of reactions that are being reproduced in various ways by people, quote unquote, of the same society who uh, have no connection with each other, but somehow 
all of these old planes multiply these imaginative possibilities such that you get this in fiction, you get it in reality, and um, and it continues. Uh, if you go there now, they have more plans to create new artistic projects out of uh, old military waste. So shifting a little bit, um, in Chapter 5, you move away from some of the focus on disused military objects themselves and towards some of the kind of broader cultural unintended consequences of militarism. Um, focusing particularly on the ways we tell stories about mass shootings. And this is a really, really remarkable chapter um, that that centers on your interviews dating back quite a long time with a school shooter in New York who decided not to carry out a planned shooting. Um, Before we delve specifically into that, could you say a little bit about how you understand mass shootings and the way they're linked to... um, they're linked to the broader argument about military waste and and the roots that you see there in settler colonialism. Yeah, I so it's kind of, it's sort of analogous to thinking about um, space debris in a sense, in that there's a problem that people see as a problem, but then the discourses around that problem that form the stories we tell about the problem tend to avoid certain possibly certain connections that to me seem quite crucial and those are connections to the military. So I already mentioned that with respect to space debris, but it's the same, I think with respect to mass shooting and the, the way I would normally explain this is that think about, you know, uh, there is all this, there are conversations about shootings in the U S uh, that keep happening and there have, they've been going on for, you know, two decades, which is why I have older research that deals with it. Right. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, there's a, separate discourse that is disconnected from it about, say, police shootings of civilians, um, usually uh, black civilians and most often black men and boys. And then there is yet another discourse around uh, U.S. permanent war and permanent war readiness uh, and critiques thereof. And uh, it seems to me really, it, it's it's kind of... Um, it's disturbing because the inability to connect these things is partly, as you were saying, um, some of the misrecognition or some of the um, problems that uh, affect uh, people in settler colonial and uh, white supremacist societies. And those problems are to see um, that the murder of systematic or accidental or collateral of people of color and indigenous people as part of our history and deeply part of our history that's woven into our history so that it's not a minor incident, but instead in some way you can explain the mass shooting through those histories of settler colonial violence. You can explain the permanent war through those histories of settler colonial violence. So in a way it's reversing the normal causality where people would see, say, police shootings of black men and boys as incidental to the gun problem in the U.S., right? They would say the gun problem occurs when you have, say, uh, white people being killed. <laughs> That's when it's brought up. Uh, and I, when I say this, I mean, at least in the United States, when police shoot civilians, people don't say, why are police armed? They say, why are police racist or 
you know, why aren't these people complying with police demands? That would be the conservative counter, right? Um, but it's not about whether police are armed or not. If there's a mass shooting, the, instead, the argument is, or the debate is, should civilians have guns? So partly to connect these debates, I kind of look in that chapter on the production of um, usually white men who have gre- a grievance and have a kind of desire to prove their honor and and uh, and um, usually that's done at the expense of uh, black and brown people. And that has been the case for since the start of the U.S. And that if you look at it that way, then mass shooting is not about is neither about purely psychological or mental problems, as they the, um, the president would say, or about, um, you know, guns purely uh, being available. It's about the production of certain identities, uh, 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 stories about, um, white grievance that are quite old and then are connected to massacres of, um, non-white people. And I found that a more productive way of thinking through mass shooting that again, leads in unexpected directions and connects the kind of militarization of subjectivities and of race to, um, the sort of normal debates about equipment, about weaponry, about gun availability. And so, so sort of building on that, the chapter talks about two mass shootings in New York that haven't received much attention. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these events and why you think they've remained relatively unknown and what, what they reveal about the form of waste that you're theorizing here as blowback? Sure. So um, the events I look at, one, again, is in my neighborhood. It was a mass shooting that happened in Binghamton um, a few years ago before I moved here. And uh, a number of people died. And it got some national attention. But it usually is not listed along, you know, unfortunately. uh, Usually uh, when there's a mass shooting, there's a series of other shootings that have happened in recent memory listed. People mention Columbine. It's probably the oldest that's mentioned. And then they mention now Las Vegas, Parkland, et cetera. Um, that series has never included Binghamton. So people very rarely add, oh, and Binghamton. And local people are aware of that. There have been stories in the local paper that I came across uh, where victims of that shooting are interviewed and they say, you know, it's, it's not that we want to be known for shootings, but why are people neglecting the shooting that happened here? And one of the, again, local explanations for that is that the shooting happened at um, a resource center for uh, the civic center where people go to uh, get their citizenship and that the vast majority of the victims and the shooter were recent immigrants. And because it was not, um, it didn't fit within the kind of racial politics of thinking about mass shooting, it sort of faded from discussion. That's one set of discussions that I think don't aren't had that, again, I think are revealing how mass shootings are connected to, um, say, whiteness and to uh, politics of race. That's one story that is revealing in that way. Another story that's revealing um, is, is the one that I came across as an undergrad when I was doing research and uh, when I started my career as an when I was trying to be an anthropologist, uh, I got interested in mass shootings. And at the time people were just calling school shootings. 
and did research with a young man who um, was uh, 19 at the time and went to his school in Elmira, New York, which is not far from Binghamton, um, in a similar military town. He went to school on Valentine's Day 2001 uh, with the intention of killing as many people as possible and then himself. He brought two guns and a bunch of homemade bombs that he'd, uh, he'd made uh, in, in his own uh, home using the anarchist cookbook. And, um, and then he decided not to go through with it. He wasn't like wrestled to the ground. He wasn't sort of shot by someone, a good guy with a gun. He literally just broke down and was like, I can't do this. And then he was peacefully apprehended by a, a law enforcement. And I found this fascinating as another story that's not told because the story we're told is about militarized masculinities that are kind of are made to kill right and that's meant to be the kind of people that uh uh exist and will always exist and are again caught up in settler colonial violence for a long time and i saw this as a kind of another alternative discourse around nonviolence and around if you like repurposing um, the mass shooting narrative to create um, alternative possibilities of nonviolence, which don't even seem possible, right? It doesn't even seem like no one, no one sees this as a likely solution. The idea that, well, one way we could stop mass shootings is by having peaceful resolutions when shooters start uh, making plans. It's, it's got to be stop them before they do what they're going to do. Um, and I thought, you know, if more people know stories like Jeremy's, maybe it would make that alternative story about um, mass shooting uh, available. Um, but, you know, I, I don't suspect it's going to happen. What I really, though, hope to do with it is, as you were saying, diagnose um, a, a tendency to emphasize certain kinds of militarized masculinities as essential and as baked into American culture when uh, there's nothing essential about them. They have to be created and continually reproduced. And all of us are working to reproduce those kinds of masculinity all the time uh, that are normally described as toxic, but are also more broadly deadly. And we should take more responsibility for how all of us help reproduce those uh, forms of uh, uh, militarized masculinity. Um, and ultimately, I. You know, it, it's tough because I hadn't looked at this research for a number of years. And in a way, I'm repurposing it, if you like, for this book. Um, it's not doing um, it's it, there are ways in which it is. It sits uneasily with some of the other material. And that's partly because of uh, how dated some of the research was. It was done in, uh, longer ago. But it also, I hope, sits uncomfortably with it because it forces us to connect events to militarism that we normally wouldn't and to think more critically about, again, um, uh, broader cultural involvement in um, military projects beyond you know, what happens in Afghanistan or what happens at um, bases in um, you know, like Fort Hood. Right. Like that we, that we are all sort of culturally implicated in forms of uh, mass violence in this larger sense. Yeah, I think that's one of the really um, incredible things throughout the book is the way that you challenge us to to rethink where we locate militarism, 
the the military itself and and looking at military waste and the sort of unexpected consequences really forces us to think about different geographies about of of these things and that chapter in particular really struck me about the way that militarism creeps into so much of our everyday life and things like that make possible some an object like a bulletproof backpack or all of these things where we have to interpret space as if we were a shooter in order to understand how to defend ourselves or protect ourselves from a potential shooter and there's this constant militarist response to militarized problems that's um, yeah almost, almost an unavoidable in American life, it seems. So I really appreciate the way that the chapter identifies um, and, and emphasizes kind of nonviolent responses to to that event that have actually occurred. Mm. And yeah, I, and thank you. And, and that's um, why I'm, I really wanted to tell that story. But I, I, uh, I gather that it, it uh, is in a way discordant with um, the, the some of the chapters we've already mentioned that have a more clear materialist focus, um, but I, I hopefully uh, in a productive way. I mean, I think initially I had that response, but it really it really does sort of settle in with the rest when you sort of understand the argument that you're making. Hmm. Well, uh, that's good to know. So the the final chapter takes us um, to the oceans um, and to the 19th century story of guano islands and U.S. imperial projection and military environmentalism. So maybe briefly, since we've taken up a lot of your time, can you say a little bit about these, uh, these Pacific and Caribbean islands, how they became increasing, incredibly important geopolitical resources and, um, and how different ideas about wilderness and wasteland have been central to the rhetorical justification of American empire over time? Yeah. Um, so I, I can say briefly a few things. One is that, again, there's this traditional story one gets in American studies and American history, which is that you know, the Spanish-American War is when, quote, America became uh, an empire or started aspiring to being an empire, right? Um, and what I found useful about thinking about Guano Islands and the Guano Islands Act is that if you, if one could sort of see these acts of grabbing waste islands and um, adding territory prior to the Spanish-American War and prior to sort of accumulating territories with no intention, you know, territories as colonies rather than territories with the intention of uh, giving them um, the possibility of sovereign statehood, right? Like uh, suddenly you go from Alaska and Hawaii to Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Why aren't they given a path to statehood, right? You know, how, how come they're colonies? So the prehistory of that imperial phase um, is usefully I think retold through uh, Guano Islands and through the kind of need as an uh, economic resource for alternative resource, uh, alternative uh, uh, fuel sources, or not fuel sources, um, uh, fertilizer sources. And uh, there is it's an episode of American history that some people have written about, but I think is mostly unknown to people, where U.S. farmers, which who were the kind of a powerful political block in the uh, sort of pre-Civil War era and, and, and afterward, um, pressuring the U.S. government to find alternative sources of um, the leading fertilizer at the time, which was guano, uh, which is, you know, bird and bat shit. And there was this coal move, uh, a sort of a, a bird shit bill that was put through Congress and passed uh, the Guano Islands Act, um, which set the U.S. on a path of acquiring islands for purely for economic gain to collect 
guano. They ended up becoming important later in ways the U.S. couldn't have known at the time in uh, acquiring territory that would be useful for an oceanic empire. Because once you shift to fossil fuels of uh, you know coal and uh, and later oil, you need coaling stations as you're moving steamships across the ocean. So you need all these islands of the Caribbean and in the Pacific to, uh, you know, fuel up your ships. So what initially are guano islands that are captured for fertilizer become useful pit stops for transoceanic imperial connections. And then later they become useful as say places where you can store radioactive waste or places that you can blow up, um, you know, with uh, uh, atomic weapons experimentally. So you're, and then most recently, they've been useful as a way of guarding territory against uh, claims by indigenous and um, uh, sort of marginalized populations of recompense against some of these um, atrocities that have been con- uh, committed in uh, oceanic, uh, as part of oceanic empire building. Um, by taking some of those guano islands and now saying, oh, they're not secret military installations, they're natural resource areas. So, you know, Obama is, say, credited with creating the, the largest um, marine preserve in history. And, you know, the, the sort of left-leaning press sees this as an environmental, with an environmental discourse and credits, uh, uh, for the most part, the U.S. government for doing the right thing and uh, creating this uh, huge wilderness area. But if you trace it through from all the way back to the Guano Islands Act, it is part of um, efforts of uh, uh, territory accumulation and, and wasting that have been seminal to um, U.S. military aspirations in the Pacific and beyond and have more recently manifested in the Indian Ocean around the contested uh, uh, Chagos Islands that uh, David Vine has uh, written about uh, and Laura Jeffrey uh, quite well, um, and the sort of dispossessed Chagossians. So, I, I my idea was that by tracing some of these unexpected histories, you end up seeing empire differently as rooted in waste, but you also see how discourses around, uh, say, the environment and climate change can get demilitarized in ways that make us um, uh, miss. Uh, their connection to colonialism and to uh, other forms of power and destruction that are far older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really incredible story, um, sort of going back to the 19th century and re- really bringing us up to date um, there too. It's one of these sort of world-spanning, like strange connections stories that is really compelling. Um, but we've taken uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, um, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about any projects that you're working on at the moment. Oh, thanks. Um, well, uh, on the one hand, I'm thinking more about um, uh, waste insofar as I'm sort of still interested in uh, especially thinking about um, alternative histories and alternative ways of thinking about waste, um, a sort of tiny side project that I think I'm going to co-author with a friend is a bit about um, thinking about waste and whiteness. Um, and waste and white supremacy. Uh, and that is um, inspired by work by sort of junior scholars, some of whom I think you know, like Marissa Solomon and um, Nick Caverly and 
uh, Alana Resnick. Um, and they're all doing really interesting work on waste and race that I find quite inspiring. So on the one hand, I, I still am interested in thinking through waste in different ways, um, even though it no longer has sort of the same um, romantic significance it did when I was uh, a young man. Um, on the other hand, this the new project I'm delving in to on the, uh, a few, right? So one is sort of about things that are wastes of time. Um, and specifically, I've been doing research on video games and, uh, and sort of getting interested in video games as this like billion dollar industry that nevertheless, most people see as um, unproductive and um, the value of unproductiveness I'm becoming fascinated by, if you like. Um, pleasure is this unproductive thing. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, my new book project is about uh, disability. Um, my son is uh, disabled and um, doesn't speak. And the I've written a little bit about this in the past, uh, but the new book is sort of thinking about how anthropology is different and what we learn differently about the world if we take seriously uh, people without words, people who don't use words. And uh, all of us um, are. Uh, it have sort of forms of non-symbolic communication. People like uh, Eduardo Cohn have written about this uh, recently quite well. But um, I, uh, I kind of want to press that in a dis disability studies direction, uh, which is new territory for me. But in a way, I'm, I see connected in ways I didn't expect uh, to discard studies. Like there are people, um, as Rosemary Thompson, who've written about disability and cite, wouldn't you know it, Mary Douglas and Matter Out of Place. So, um, you know, I'm reading stuff I think I know. So I'm reading stuff I think of as new territory. And yet um, people are saying, oh, well, disabled people are disposed of or are, right, um, hidden out of sight and are almost like wasted. And that um, certain care facilities are like landfills that um, hide people who are. Um, neurodivergent or disabled from public perception and experience. And that kind of idea of wasting people, I guess, is part of the disability project also. Really interesting. I can't wait to see uh, what comes of these projects. So thank you so much for joining us um, and for taking the time to talk. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, yeah. So have I. Thank you so much, uh, Jacob, and, and uh, take care. Thanks. Thanks.